0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Allianz Travel Insurance. A travel delay can cost you more than just time. Learn why 70 million American travelers protect their trips with Allianz Travel Insurance. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm going to say one word to describe Chloe Sevigny. Uh, cool. She started out as a model, then she was in music videos for bands like Sonic Youth and The Lemonheads, then she started acting in arthouse movies. Her debut was in the very, very big deal indie film Kids, directed by Larry Clark. She went on to even bigger things. She was nominated for an Oscar for her work in Boys Don't Cry, She was in indie movies like The Last Days of Disco and Broken Flowers. She had regular roles on shows like Big Love and American Horror Story. Her latest project is Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. It's a TV miniseries based on the real-life feud Truman Capote had with a group of New York socialites, the Swans. Seven Yee plays CZ Guest, an actress, author, and one of the aforementioned Swans. That show is running now on FX. I talked to Chloe a couple of years ago. She had just starred in The Girl from Plainville. It's a TV drama series inspired by the so-called texting suicide case. Conrad Roy III was 18 years old when he died by suicide in 2014. His girlfriend, then 17-year-old Michelle Carter, was charged and later convicted in connection to his death. The series explores the events leading up to Roy's death and the relationship he and Carter shared. This is a clip from the pilot of the show. Conrad's family is getting ready for his funeral. His mom, Lynn, who is played by Chloe Sevigny, asks her daughter for her thoughts about an outfit she's picked out.
3: How about this one? Sid? Yeah? How about this? It's fine. You would have told me, right? What? If you knew he was thinking about it. Yeah. I don't know why I asked it. Coco's friend, that girl, Michelle. Such a sweet girl.
1: She texted you again?
3: Yeah, she's hurting. I think she wants to be close to us or something. Did you know they were so close? Sorta. You left her a note. What did it say? A lot. He loved her.
2: Chloe, welcome to Bullseye. I'm, I'm happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. Happy to be here. Did you think about when you were preparing for this? Did,
3: did you think about what
2: kind of teenager you were?
3: No, I'm. I'm more thinking about that and processing the work post-taste, which is generally my process. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Why well, I, I kind you of make sense of it. I
3: kind of make sense of it afterwards in in a way, which is backwards, I know. I guess preparing for press, like I, I more kind of reflect on it. I think during while I'm in it, it's more instinctual.
2: What kind of reflections have you made in preparing to do press? What do you thought about?
3: I thought about yeah, my own adolescence. And, um, the the security and love I had from my family and yet I still struggled. I wouldn't say I struggled with depression, but I mean, I was hormonal and had problems that lots of teenagers have. Then as a parent, like, how do you read that? I guess I was thinking, you know, now I'm a mother and thinking about my son and when he becomes a teenager, like how do you know if it's serious or not? And that, to me, is terrifying. Because, like, Lynn thought that Coco was on the up and up. He was, you know, thinking about going to school. he just gotten his captain's license. They went to the beach. He was, like, going to visit his friend at school. Things seemed fine. And then that night, he took his life. And she thought they were very close I imagine she wanted to be, you know, really involved but not intrusive. Like, that's the sense of her that I got from watching her interviews. But how does one know? I mean, we're dealing with a mental health crisis in America right now. And, you know, and we see, you know, very successful, happy, beautiful people suffering in all walks of life. You know, it's like there's no guarantees so I guess yeah I'm I'm mostly terrified going forward how to interpret my teens' feelings.
2: <laughs> Was it appealing to uh to work as a sort of uh down to earth mom?
3: Yes, I think over m- The years in my career, I've played a lot of very grounded characters and kind of the moral compass of many a story and or film. And I think, yeah, showrunners, directors see something of that in me, Um, this, you know, quote-unquote realness. But when I was offered The Girl from Plainville and I watched the documentary on HBO, um, I Love You Now, Die, I was just very taken by Lynn, by her personality and um, that she put forward in the documentary. Because, you know, whenever there's a camera on, we give a certain version of ourselves. And I'm sure she was protecting um, certain aspects. But I was, yeah, I was just taken. Taken by her humor and her attitude and just the way she spoke.
2: It feels like it would be a hard place to to live as an actor for the amount of time that it takes to make a series that's as sort of long and deep as this. You know, it's not a, this isn't two weeks of work. You know what I mean?
3: No, it was about five months. My son was just over a year and I live in New York City and we were shooting in Savannah. So I was going back and forth a lot and there was a lot of time away from him. So it was kind of like a double whammy <laughs> dealing with the subject matter and then dealing with my first time away from him and then what that would mean going forward you know i'm an actress i this is my career and i love it and i'm i you know i have a lot of great opportunities and i hope to continue to have those but what is it going to mean moving forward doing this um so it was i was yeah it was a lot to kind of think about and take in and process. and
2: Especially when you're doing a story that's about a, a character trying to understand where they were connected and disconnected from their kid.
3: Yeah, it was pretty, it was a, it was pretty painful place to be for five months.
2: Did you have a plan for how you were going to have a kid in your life and how you were going to integrate your family and professional lives like did you did you always have a scheme or was it something that you were like well something will happen and I will figure it out
3: no he um, was a happy accident yeah I had him later I was 45 I I'd struggled earlier um, in my life with conception and um, so he yeah he came along we're like we're just gonna figure it out. Yeah. I you know, it was like the best thing to ever happen to either of us.
2: What kind of teen were you before you, you know, like when you were when you were in your late teens, when you were seventeen or eighteen or something, uh you sort of embarked upon your career, you mm-hmm. started modeling and and ended up acting and et cetera. But before that, uh what kind of teen were you?
3: Like junior high or like freshman, sophomore year?
2: I'm talking about 14 and 15, you know what I mean?
3: Yeah. Um. I mean, I think junior high, I was pretty. I was pretty happy. I was like just, you know, into like playing softball and Esprit clothing and like, you know, going to the pizza parlor and hanging out at the beach. And I was pretty popular. I also grew up, you know, in a really wealthy community without a lot of without as much as everyone else. So there was always a little bit of a a, a divide. And I think around that age I started kind of distancing myself from some of the more popular cliques. Um, but my town was really small and I'd known everyone since kindergarten. So you're you're just basically all together, you know. And then when I got into high school, my brother dated this girl that was from California and she had purple hair and wore Doc Martens and kilts. And I guess maybe that was eighth grade. And I became like obsessed with her. And I was like, I want to be like, quote unquote, alternative. Maybe that was eighth grade because I remember my first day of eighth grade, I wore like striped stockings to school and like this mock neck knit two-piece outfit and like Shelto Doc Martens or something. So, yeah, that must have been eighth grade when I started the alternative vibes (laughs) or aspirations. (laughs) When I was like, okay, I don't want to be the Esprit girl. I'm looking for something else. Which was hard to find where we lived.
2: Did you grow up in a family where that was unusual or expected?
3: Uh, Well... I, but my brother was doing it, so it was kind of like you know he was paving the way. Um, and my father was a bit of an outsider, so
2: yeah. The yeah. Re- the reason I ask is because like I I know almost nothing about your parents, but I, there's like a, a line in a bio somewhere or something that said that your your dad was a, an accountant and later an art teacher, and I was like,
3: oh <laughs> well, I don't I don't know what that is. <laughs> Yes, I think he had always had aspirations to be an artist, and his family was pretty conservative, and, and he went the business route. And I think he was always, you know, kind of kicking himself for not being true to who he was. Um, so they encouraged him, My my brother and I. Like, I actually started acting when I was— quite young. I went to summer theater camp in kindergarten and then I was doing, you know, plays in school and summer theater camp and started doing commercials. I was in a Voltron commercial, I think in first or second grade and was doing like catalog modeling in Connecticut. And so people think that this happens like in my later teens, but it was something I had aspired to since, since a very young age.
2: I'm really excited to learn about this Voltron situation.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Go, Voltron Force, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you you draw you drop that one in there like uh like we were gonna slide past it, but uh I think we need to address these
3: The poor man's transformer.
2: <laughs> maybe, maybe the rich man's transformer Voltron.
3: <laughs> Voltrons were pretty cool. <laughs> I was the pink lion. <laughs>
2: So, was it one of those kind of commercials... I'm sorry that I'm going to ask you about this and not the the many wonderful works of art that you've created in your long career, but I am excited to talk about Voltron (laughs) for a second. Um, Was it one of those kind of television commercials where, like... um, uh, where like there's kids in kind of a featureless black box and they're like holding the toy and the toys in the foreground and the kids are in the background. They're going like, yeah, shoot,
3: do. you know what I you mean? You got it. We must be in the same age bracket. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like playing with them and, you know, yeah. And then you
2: become them. Then there's like a voiceover that says like, you got to do it in the crossfire <laughs> or whatever. That rules. I mean, I feel like that is a very pres- that's pretty much the most prestigious thing you could do as a ten year old or eight year old. I'm trying to think of something more prestigious than that. I'm struggling. Major <laughs> league baseball player, but that seems unlikely.
3: Yes, I'm pretty proud of my work in the Voltron commercial to say.
2: Did you, was there a was there a time when you stopped doing that?
3: Yes. I think when I started like 13, kind of ugly duckling, losing my teeth. And I remember like we went to the dentist to get like a bridge to fill in some gaps for like the auditions. And my mom's like, this is getting out of hand. And I think there was a lot of rejection. And I think honestly, she was tired of, like, dragging me into the city and these big cattle call-like environments, and she's like, no more of this. You know, you can go back to professional, you know, when you're 18.
2: How did you feel about it at the time?
3: I think I was okay with it. I remember there was another girl in my school that was much more successful. She got a lot more commercials (laughs) and modeling jobs, and she was much prettier. And so I think at a young age, too young of an age, I was really comparing myself to um, specifically her and then, yeah, other girls.
2: How did you feel about going on auditions for things that you didn't get?
3: I mean, I wasn't really that gregarious. Like, I think that I was probably a pretty awkward kid. I think that I just, like, I knew I wanted to do it and I was good at it. Like, at camp. But like, I wasn't like turning it out, you know. So it was awkward. I don't know. I think I just like I'd seen Annie on Broadway. I was obsessed with Little House, you know, different strokes. Like I was seeing kids on TV doing this. And I was like, you know, Drew and E.T., all of this. Like, I was like, I want to do what all these kids are doing.
2: We have so much more to get into. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
2: You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Chloe Sevigny. At what point did you learn to sew?
3: I think I had like a Fisher-Price sewing machine somewhere in grade school. And my mom taught me to use it and I would make like doll's clothes.
2: Did your mom make clothes?
3: She didn't, but she, she could, you know, she could, she was better at hand sewing than the machine, but she was very crafty, my mom, and she always, we always did a lot of crafty things at home, <gasps> uh, and a lot of, like, you know, traditional, like, female-y things, tropsy, housewifey things, gardening, cooking sewing, yeah.
2: I mean, all of those are pretty great things. They are. I'm not into crafting myself. <laughs> Anytime I try and do that, it feels like I'm setting myself up for failure.
3: But we would like make donuts and ice cream and, you know, you know, all kinds of fun things as well. Yeah. What kind of donuts did you make? Know? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> she had some sort of donut making device. Did
2: you make clothes for yourself when you were uh, when you got good at it?
3: I did. Yeah, I made a lot. I was more like reworking stuff. And I make some stuff from scratch as well. Um, yeah, I started that kind of like, yeah, probably eighth grade. And then like, yeah, through high school. But I got really into, um, I, I had these like alternative years. So my older brother was like alternative and punky. And I was into his scene in and, and, and freshman year and... into, like, you know, all the classic 90s um, alternative and 80s. And um, there was, like, a hardcore club near us in Connecticut that we used to go to. And, um, And then I think summer between, like, freshman and sophomore, we were, like, an outdoor festival, and I might have done a hallucinogenic. And I met a boy there, and he had really long hair, and he was Argentinian and really beautiful, and he was really into the Grateful Dead. And so I kind of like segued into a little bit of that scene for a while. And there was a lot of dressmaking involved in that. Um,
2: Were they like prairie dresses?
3: Yes, they're called spinner dresses specifically. Yes, they're like an empire waist with like a bigger skirt. Lots of patchwork involved (laughs) for spinning because you just kind of spin, you know. People think it's, yeah. people think there's like a lot of noodling, which is a really unfortunate word. But no, it was more of the spinning that I was into.
0: <laughs>
3: so I'd make the outfits that kind of go with that. Yeah. And you would sell them at the shows, you know. It was a whole culture. Still is. I love the, the, the
2: entrepreneurial aspect of this.
3: Yeah. That's like the very much of the scene, you know, like Shakedown Street on the lot. Like kids, like, you know. Paying their way or making their way through tour by selling stuff and ground scoring, you know people just like run through the the venues at the ends and like pick up change or whatever they found that people had dropped, you know and yeah, it was ground scoring
2: this is some like,
3: <laughs> this is a deep dive into dead world
2: <laughs> i'm I'm loving learning about this I'm absolutely I'm from the inner city. I don't know anything about this stuff. <laughs> Even inner city San Francisco, they don't have this.
3: Yes, they do. Come on. <laughs> Especially in San Francisco.
2: <laughs> so, like, by the time you started wandering off by yourself, which seems to have been in your like mid-teens, mm-hmm. uh, that you were either like uh that you were like going away for the weekend <laughs> by yourself, was it were you still in um uh, hallucinogens and calico dresses mode?
3: Kind of both. I was kind of like dipping my toes in like all these different worlds. Like I started working at Polo Ralph Lauren and that was when like all the like the hip hop kids were getting really into polo. They were called lowlifes and they would like, and I saw so that kind of, kind of there was like also the delight, kind of like raver, hippie, homegirl, alterna girl, kind of like it all started churning into one. And the kids used to come to the mall and they'd be like, oh, Chloe, you have any teddy bear sweaters? And I would like bring them out from the back. Teddy bear bear sweaters were the big thing. But yeah, I was kind of like a jack of all. I was like, I was just into like youth culture, except surfing. That was like the one youth culture I had zero interest in.
2: Did you think you were going to be an actor? Like you started acting... You, it's not like you started acting like by by like going to theater school and then like showing up with headshots at at agents offices i don't think um but like was it your goal to be working actor
3: it was when i was younger and like through you know junior high and then when i got into high school i got into other things that teenagers get into that lead them astray um which unequivocally did, and I kind of lost interest in a lot of extracurricular extracurricular and, you know, school in general. So um, I think I auditioned for the drama club, and I just didn't click with the, with the teacher in high school. Um, I remember senior year, I auditioned for West Side Story. I had a shaved head, so I auditioned to play a boy part, um, which was very ahead of its time. And I didn't get the part, so I ended up working in costumes. And I think... You didn't get any part? No. (laughs) She held it against... She had a thing against me. She didn't like me. But boy, did I prove her wrong.
2: (laughs) Could you sing and dance?
3: (laughs) I could sing, yeah. Um... And I think around then I was very into, like, fashion and and I thought I wanted to go into costumes or maybe work in a magazine. I had interned at Sassy Magazine and in the fashion department. And I was kind of unsure of what I wanted to do, but, you know, I wanted to do, yeah, something in fashion or film. And, you know, I started doing music videos. I did the Sonic Youth video. I had met Harmony Korine, who became, like, a very near and dear friend. Um and I was just surrounding myself and very attracted to people that were like doing stuff. So, yeah, I was just, I was driven, but I didn't know to what end.
2: But you were trying to figure out, like, well, I have to work to eat and work, just, just the meeting the bare standard of working as an actor is a hard standard to me.
3: Probably. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely paycheck to paycheck until Big Love. And that's, I think, when a lot of the fashion stuff entered the picture. Because I was like, wow, look at this big money. You know, like one day selling out, quote unquote, which people don't really think of it as now. Um, but then it was a serious, you know, um, thing for me. Like, um, yeah, I, I was really torn about doing that kind of stuff then and I remember my brother being like our dad would have to work a year to make that much money or you know, take the money and run thank God I followed his advice because now it doesn't matter
2: Are you ready to play Spider-Man? What is that? Spider-Man, he's like a guy that got bitten by a radioactive (laughs) spider and (laughs) he shoots webs they make a lot of movies Yes, I think
3: my my brother was him for Halloween once or twice in the 70s (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> were you uh, were you not going out on uh, auditions to be in Armageddon or whatever? Or were you going to those things and people were thinking that you were, were too cool for school or whatever?
3: I think a little of bo- uh, both. I was in New York because my mom was, you know, in Connecticut. And like I said, my father had passed. So I never really, I never made the leap because I wanted to be close to her. Um, and, you know, Pre-9-11, there still were a lot of auditions in New York, but after that, there was not—you had to go to L.A. Yeah, so, yeah, I I mean, I don't think I was competing with, like, the Liv Tylers or Claire Danes of that day. I was, you know, I was, like, auditioning for, like, you know, the sidekick of the funny girl.
0: (laughs) 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 Those kinds of things.
2: A couple steps removed, you were moving your way from branch to branch down the tree of the call sheet. Yeah, I I want to play. I want to play a scene from um, one of the movies that you made in the in the relatively early days of your career, not the very beginning, but the relatively early days of your career. The last days of disco.
3: Oh yeah, great movie.
2: It's just such a great movie. and um,
3: I mean, how do you top that? I mean, one of your first movies is Last Age of Disco. You're like, excuse me, give me something better.
2: I can't even imagine <laughs> uh, what it would be like to just do any other thing once you had done a Whit Stillman thing. The most Witt Stillman-y uh, of all things is all Witt Stillman things.
3: I mean, I had a lot of heavy hitters early on. It was really hard to top that.
2: Um, So the movie is about kind of the the very beginning of the 80s and uh, a bunch of young adults, Ivy League young adults. And in this scene, the character Alice, who who my guest Chloe plays, has just finished up a date with a guy named Jimmy. And they're at his house and uh, Alice finds his Scrooge McDuck comic books.
3: What's this?
0: Um, I collect original edition Scrooge McDuck comics. Um, no, it sounds a little odd. Not at all. This is original artwork by Carl Barks, who created the Uncle Scrooge comics. He's considered a bit of a genius. There's something really
3: sexy about Scrooge McDuck.
0: You really think so?
2: Did you feel like you had a sense of what you were good at and weren't good at as an actor? Like, did did you feel like you were playing to your strengths or was it a, like an ideological feeling?
3: Remember a lot of Last Days of Disco being like, I have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> what is this movie? What are we doing? Um, but I think I was good at like, yeah, just keeping it grounded and um, nuanced. Like, I'm always trying to get back to the performance in The Last Days of Disco. I think it's one of my best performances. I'm always trying to get back to that kind of acting.
2: What about it do you like, retrospectively?
3: I just something unselfconscious in it, even though the dialogue is so self-conscious. Yeah, it's just, it's nuanced, it's internal, it's, you know, quiet, it's, yeah.
2: I mean, I think that's one of your strongest qualities as an actor, that you are I- interesting to to see do person stuff, you know what I mean?
3: Mm. Do person stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's like... it's. <laughs> You, you don't have to you don't have to uh you don't have to scream and yell to be interesting to watch do something on screen i
3: hate yelling <laughs> I'm really bad at yelling on screen i just like i did Russian doll in like season two and There's this one scene where I have to do a lot of yelling, and Natasha's one of my oldest friends, and I remember her, like, cracking up and being like, all right, everybody, Chloe hates yelling. (laughs) She just knows, because whenever we go to the theater, I'm like, why is everybody yelling? (laughs) I think that comes from my mother.
2: Uh what about other uh what about other big things on screen? Do you feel like you're comfortable uh going through, you know, paroxysms of tears or whatever?
3: Yeah, tears. Tears are tears are good for me. That's a that's a comfortable place. <laughs> it's a yeah, strong suit. Yeah. Running terrible. Um
2: why do you think why do you think yelling is hard and tears less so?
3: I think yelling because I don't like the texture of my voice when I yell, and I forget to, like, yell from my diaphragm. Um, So it's something, like, cringy, you know? Um, Tears are, yeah, I don't know. Something I do a lot of, so I, like, (laughs) it's a comfort zone.
2: We'll wrap up with Chloe Sevenyi in just a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and
0: NPR. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This
1: message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: Hello, sleepyheads. Sleeping with Celebrities is your podcast pillow pal. We talk to remarkable people about unremarkable topics, all to help you slow down your brain and drift off to sleep. For instance, we have the remarkable Neil Gaiman. I'd always had a vague interest in live culture, food preparation. Sleeping with Celebrities, hosted by me, John Moe, on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Night-night.
2: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Chloe Sevigny. She is, of course, an actor and model. She starred in indie films like Kids, Dogville, and American Psycho. She received an Academy Award nomination for her part in the 1999 drama Boys Don't Cry. These days, you can see Sevigny in the TV drama Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, airing now on FX. She and I talked in 2022. Let's get back into our conversation. Do you feel like you could be... Happy and fulfilled if you had a job, the kind of acting job where um, your skill and talent is a is a vessel for a machine that makes something that people enjoy, but like you also just get to go there on Monday from nine to Monday Monday to Friday nine to
3: five. If we're talking procedural, no I have like I' always have a hard time doing procedural. I've tried over and over and because
2: um... the you can't do the exposition
3: can um and I've done some of that recently but yeah it's it's not that fulfilling yeah for me um but if it's shooting in New York and now that I have a son and when he gets into school maybe <laughs> yeah I mean like I, for for
2: real like some some people I think love that they just have a job like some yeah. people want like a big part of the appeal of acting for them is that they're doing a very different thing every time they get a job Mm -hmm. um and that they're always jumping off a cliff and and learning something uh but i think a lot there there are plenty of great actors who are just thrilled that they can like go and act every day and that's the part of it that's important to them so that's a dream job
3: yeah, I guess it would depend on the job and, like, where I am in my life. I remember, like, Big Love, that character couldn't have been more complicated. And, I mean, to me, she she was the best character on the show, but, of course, I played her. Um, but after a while, I'm like, really, this problem? This problem again? I have to deal with this again? And I'm like, yes, well, that's real life. You have the same problems over and over. So even in that environment, I remember getting frustrated at, like, the repetition of it. But I might feel differently now.
2: You are famously well dressed, uh, and I think I I always think ah she looks great. What a great what a great outfit. Anytime I see a picture of you in an outfit, thanks Jesse, I appreciate that. (laughs) I mean it, I mean it. Um, I will say though that like when I I had a uh, still have, but I'm not super active in writing for. But I had a menswear blog for a long time, and like the part of um, I, I loved I loved writing about clothes. I love clothes. But the thing where uh, me showing that I cared about it, uh, m- people often felt like I was uh, in in demonstrating that, judging them, and that also like they should definitely judge me because I was interested in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, gosh, you had to deal with that, but like in the New York Post or whatever. Not on Reddit,
3: yeah, I mean, it's part of my job. I mean, you know, I'm a public person, um there were the like wanting to wear things and knowing, no knowing that I would just get ripped to shreds because of who I was, you know, people I somehow got into that box where, like, you know say Rihanna was wearing it people were like oh it's fabulous but I'm wearing it like what was she thinking um somehow for a minute I was that for like the us weeklies and i mean it's the same thing now like with instagram one bad comment and that's all you think about out of you know 5000 great comments you know so it was so there was that for a while like in the early 2000s when when those magazines were you know ubiquitous and you know People, everybody looked at them.
2: Did you find that that led you to be um, more or less invested in wearing something weird? Like, did it was it was your reaction to that? Oh, okay, well then I'm just gonna. There was always
3: a big divide for me between red carpet and my personal. Like, I feel like I never knew how to be myself on the red carpet. Like, I was always playing the part, and I was like, I don't, I. I still look at red carpet photos. I'm like, who is that? What is that? Who is that person? Like I was, you know, um, but in real life I was having a blast (laughs) when I was going out to clubs or on the street or whatever I was doing, traveling. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm still a little, the red carpet still evades me to a certain extent. It's very hard to dress fancy, you know
2: do you still uh do you still make or alter your own clothes sometimes
3: i do yes i really like working with denim yeah um I'm really into all the like junior Watanabe denim stuff with the eyelets and i'm always trying to make my own versions <laughs> um that rules
2: what what's the last thing you made
3: um the last thing i made was like a denim and eyelet mini skirt yeah
2: (laughs) do you what do you what do you do to put the eyelets in do you like punch is there is there a special punch of
3: some kind no like like trimmings like adding trimmings yes with a sewing machine
2: got it i love it yeah where are you wearing that to whole foods (laughs) sure yeah wherever well, I sure, I sure appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me. Um, it, was, it was really nice to get to talk to you. I so admire your work. Thank you. I appreciate it. Chloe Sevenier, catch her now on FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where each and every one of us are finding out if there are any holes in our roofs because boy has it been raining our show is produced by speaking into microphones our senior producer is kevin ferguson our producers are jesus ambrosio and richard Roby. our production fellow at maximum fun is daniel juecias we get booking help from mary davis our interstitial music is by djw also known as dan wally our theme song is called huddle formation it was written and recorded by the go team thanks to the go team thanks to their label memphis industries Bullseye is on Instagram at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, so follow us there. You can also find us on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I think that's about it. Just remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign off.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to vioricom slash NPR.
1: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR.
0: When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learn. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.